Welcome to Capacity Conversations, your thoughts or mine, a podcast about capacity and decision-making in Canada, presented by the Capacity Clinic. I'm Malcolm Maxwell, Chair of the Advisory Board at the Capacity Clinic. Each day, Canadian professionals face a growing numbers of vulnerable adults or their substitute decision-makers. This growth stresses historical practices for assuring capacity when important decisions are being made. The pandemic has given us a glimpse of the future, where the numbers of elderly clients, their mobility considerations, and the need for professional diligence in determining capacity are all growing. Issues requiring legal and clinical support arise frequently, and that's where we come in. At Capacity Clinic, our mission is to improve supported decision-making and capacity evaluation. We do this by creating Canadian expertise and intellectual property, designing and developing educational programming, and supplying individual consultations from leading experts. In this podcast, we'll dive into all aspects of capacity and decision-making so that you know what to do if you're working with, know, or are someone in need of a capacity evaluation. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Capacity Conversations. Today, we are fortunate to be joined again by the Capacity Clinic's Medical Director, Dr. Richard Schulman, and Capacity Clinic Advisory Board Member, Dr. Arlen Pache. If you listened to earlier episodes, you'll recall that Richard is a geriatric psychiatrist and Arlen is a neuropsychologist. Both of them have specialty interests in the area of capacity assessments. In this episode, we'll be diving into the role and value of retrospective capacity assessments, while also detailing the difference between retrospective and contemporaneous evaluations, both of which we provide at the Capacity Clinic. Thank you, Dr. Schulman and Dr. Pache, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. From earlier episodes, we know that the idea of capacity is is task-specific. A person can have capacity for one type of decision and not necessarily have capacity for another. And over time in various court decisions, different tests have evolved uh, to fit some of those situations. Can you give us a sense in your respective practices, what kinds of decisions often come to you for Uh, advice as to whether the person has capacity, just so our listeners can have a a sense of the different groups of decisions. Well, I can lead off a touch with some discussion of the medical issues that commonly present from a capacity perspective when I complete assessments at the hospitals, which will often revolve around choice of accommodation. Can they go back home or not, despite the medical issues present or the cognitive impairment present? Do they understand and appreciate the risks associated with going home or not, the safety issues. And again, going back to a comment you just made, Malcolm, capacity is a continuum. An example of a common medical issue I've been asked is, can someone provide consent to a certain treatment? Some treatments are much more complex than others. A certain degree of cognitive impairment may not render someone impaired from a decisional capacity perspective for a certain medical choice, but maybe render them impaired we're unable to make choices about something much more complex. So we always have to keep that in mind. So it's a wide range of questions related to various personal financial matters, 
Um, Richard, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the more legal tests like testamentary or intervivos gifting, those kind of things. Yes, I find that a very common question is uh, an older person has a pre-existing power of returning for property. But the question is for the attorneys for property, should they now take over the management of the property from usually it's their, the parent? You know, so you don't need a declaration of incapacity to get statutory guardianship by the public guardian and trustee. It's really a question of the attorneys to know to impose their duties, to inform the bank, to inform investment uh, companies, this type of thing. So, so this is a very common scenario. And it's this is not a service here in Ontario that's covered by OHIP services. So this falls outside of healthcare. It's uh, providing an opinion typically to uh, a lawyer is often involved assisting the attorney for property and the there may be opposition there may be conflict the older person may even have a lawyer it may go into a guardianship application so dealing with these types of complicated family conflicts sometimes over competing uh, attorneys the parent may have signed multiple powers of attorney. Mm. Is the person capable to do so? These type of things that are really outside of healthcare that we see commonly. Mm. So capacity is, even for an individual, it's dependent on the time and the task that they're undertaking, the decision they're making, and I guess the broader situation they find themselves in. Yeah, very much so. One of the types of capacity, one of the important decisions uh, that all of us need to make at one point or another is, is uh, the making of a will, more broadly a testamentary capacity. Richard, can, can you help us understand more specifically the, the considerations as to whether or not someone has the capacity to embark on making a will? So in this scenario, we're contacted because People are presumed to be capable, but sometimes an older person will go to a, a lawyer and the testamentary wishes might seem controversial. There might be a decision to disinherit the child, for example, or disproportionate gifts within the family. And there's often family conflict and there's concerns that uh, what is the decision-making capacity of the person if there's pre-existing cognitive impairment? Are they able to understand the nature of their assets? Is there any mental illness impacting this decision to possibly disinherit one of the children? Are they suffering from delusions, from a, a dementing illness, the most common cause of delusions in the elderly, for example? And also, what are their susceptibility to being unduly influenced by one of the beneficiaries? What's the relationships? Is there a confidential and dominating relationship? So. The medical expert can assist the lawyer to understand if there's any underlying mental health pathology that could compromise their capacity to make a will. And there's a straightforward legal test from case law that the lawyers know and the, the people who do this work who do these evaluations, we know the legal test. And so we can evaluate the person's abilities to meet the criteria of this legal test and evaluate their ability to learn information and whether there's underlying pathology affecting their mental state. So that's where the medical expert comes in to assist the lawyer in the case of someone who wants to make a will or change a will in late life. And similarly, 
unfortunately, sometimes there's estate litigation because after the person's deceased, someone sues the estate because they're, you know, they felt that they were unfairly disinherited or there's disproportionate gifts, etc. So the contemporaneous assessment, it's like an insurance policy inside the file of the lawyer. And or it could also be that the expert might give the opinion this person is not capable to make a will. Well, that can help protect the estate also from litigation. So that's where the role of the lawyer getting um, an opinion can assist them in their uh, in helping their client. Yeah, I would add a further point to what Richard mentioned is, you know, the clinician's role to inform the trier of fact about what vulnerabilities are at play, not just cognitively, but even psychosocially as well. I think that's a, a very important degree of expertise clinicians often lend to be a lawyer, often when it comes to retrospective or contemporaneous evaluations, we really assist. Again, the trier effect will come to the final decision about if someone had testamentary capacity or not. Our role is to highlight the main threats to that. And if we feel those threats are really salient, or if there's a preponderance of those threats, you know, we're going to highlight those. Arlen, uh, Richard spoke of uh, illnesses and pathologies that might affect capacity, uh, but you referred to uh, uh, psychosocial factors as well, which I, I would take to mean someone's uh, dependence perhaps on a friend or adult child or possibly someone uh, seeking to influence uh, uh, their independence and decision. Are, the, are those the central points in, when you talk about psychosocial factors affecting capacity, or can you expand on that area? That could be a whole podcast by itself, to be plain. It's a very complex area. Talking about due and undue influence, we would need, really need to operationalize those terms to be brief. Psychosocial, the clinician, you know, be it Richard or myself, we're well aware of factors which can result in someone being more vulnerable. That could be isolation due to someone being a paraplegic, post-accident, they're vulnerable upon someone else to help facilitate care. They're at the whim of that person. And there's lots of, you know, mental health can render you more vulnerable as well. Degree of cognitive impairment can also render someone more vulnerable. So there's many factors to consider. Availability of family, bringing caregivers to the home, etc. If at the time someone makes a will and, and there's some concern about capacity, I, I liked uh, Richard's comment that a, a capacity assessment could be uh, seen as an insurance policy so, so that if a controversial provision was was debated later on, you have a stronger evidence base that the, the will was was made with with the capacity. We have opened this episode talking about retrospective capacity assessments. Richard, could you give us the 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 thin definition of a, a retrospective capacity assessment? The, the retrospective is after the fact. So it's it's looking back and typically it's related to litigation over an estate. So you could refer to it as some people call it a psychological autopsy, but I, I don't really see it that way. The way I see it is the court has to come to determination of a person's testamentary capacity. What the medical expert can do is assist the court to understand the medical evidence. 
because the the judge is not an expert in medicine, obviously, and the court requires experts to assist them to understand the evidence. And that's where my role can come in. I have a greater ability to review a medical file, the ability to recognize things that the lawyer may not see. Oftentimes, there's evidence that's not even apparent in the medical records that I can tease out and explain in detail and even point out things that were missed by the clinicians at the time. So having an expertise in this medical area, in my opinion, assists the court to understand the medical evidence. And then the the trier of fact can make the final determination. But that's really the role of the medical expert assisting the court in that way. So in that situation, you know, we say that adults always have a presumption of capacity. If I was to make a will and it was challenged at a later time, does the court begin with the position that I was presumed to have capacity? Or or maybe if I put the question differently, when when either of you are asked to offer an expert opinion, uh, is it the person that made the will who's who's presumed to have capacity? Is the person making the challenge required to have a higher burden of proof to over overturn a will? How, do, how does that work? This is more of the, the legal uh, determination of the burden of proof. And so really the, the expert is uh, impartial. It doesn't matter which side of the conflict retains the expert. You have to be nonpartisan, impartial. Your report is really to assist the court. You're not a hired gun for one side or the other. And so, yes, with capacity, there's always a presumption of capacity. And then uh, the expert really tries to interpret the medical evidence and see if it facilitates evaluating the criteria of the legal test of testamentary capacity, which comes from case law, but it's a straightforward legal test. And you try to determine if the person would have probably would have been able or not able to have met the criteria for the legal test, and that's how you assist the court. So as as clinical experts, you're not advocating one position or another. You're simply offering your best expert interpretation of the situation. Correct. So the idea of doing a capacity assessment retrospectively is a challenging one. Can can you explain a little to us, maybe start with you on this one, Arlen, the, the difference between a contemporaneous and a retrospective assessment and how you can approach it? Of course, the contemporaneous assessment is that you have the patient, the client in front of you, and you're doing the assessment contemporaneously, actively now, while retrospectively, the person has passed on quality, pardon me, the ability to provide a strong retrospective opinion is typically based upon the quality of the documentation review or available. If you have a very small quantum of documentation, the person never was hospitalized, they're relying upon just some collateral reports from best and third parties, the quality of the documentation is not as strong. So to separate them, having a strong contemporaneous assessment face-to-face, you know, as Richard said, at the time of whale generation or in and around that time, it's an excellent way, commonly used in my practice um, from different counsel in the community to quote unquote provide that insurance when that's not completed and there's been a significant challenge to the whale because of a distribution change or perceived threat to testamentary capacity. 
person has passed away, then we completed retrospective analyses thereafter. But again, it's a very arduous process, often lots of documentation to review. And, and again, as Richard mentioned, our expertise lies in being able to pull apart this documentation with a different field of view, with a different scope than others. Hmm. Richard, anything you would add to that? No, that's I was, that's exactly it. And, and really, the retrospective, it's a time-consuming exercise. It requires review of all the medical records that are made available. Uh, oftentimes, lawyers will ask me to read examinations for discovery, but that only puts things into context. The, the judge will evaluate the evidence and the evidence provided by the beneficiaries and lay people. That, that's not really for us to evaluate. I really focus on the medical records and that's where I have an expertise that the court does not have. That's where I can help the court. And geriatric psychiatry, neuropsychology, these are fields of practice that really lend to this type of work because it's understanding how cognitive impairment affects decision-making and certain illnesses affect decision-making. And this is uh, what you need to be able to know how to look for and how to evaluate. One of the things that I enjoy about my association with the, the capacity clinic is, is some of the work that's done there can help uh, individuals and families avoid some of the hardships that come with disputes and, and debates around capacity. Sometimes that can be done by an initial contact with a client involving a better screening for capacity. Sometimes that can be done with a bit of education. I wonder if it's been the experience of, of you both in your, in your work with retrospective assessments. Are there times when being able to offer an independent opinion um, before things have landed in court have allowed some events to be resolved or resolved more rapidly uh, as opposed to always going through the full court process? Or is it pretty much hardwired to go to the judge once it gets to that stage? Well, I, I could tell you right off the bat that the vast majority of the cases I'm involved in end up being settled before they go to court. Yes. That's been my experience, that my report helps facilitate a settlement. And it's the rare case that goes all the way to court and then is reliant on the court's decision one way or the other. Has your experience been similar, Erwin? It's definitely been similar. However, I seem to be testifying as an expert for retrospective analyses anywhere from three to five times a year at this point. Yes. But again, that's a, that is a relatively small percentage of the files I still that I complete analyses on. There have been some interesting movement in the last two years, at least where I've generally practiced the most in Alberta, related to settlements before trial and using my report as a actual report between two different counsel at the same time. It's been very interesting. So the two different counsel from opposing parties agree upon me reviewing the documentation and they're providing an opinion, and then they go away. And I, my presumption is that it settles out because I don't end up in trial. But that seems to be what's happening a little bit more in the last couple of years. I see. So not quite a mediation, but a, a service to both parties. It seems to be the way. A bit, a bit more frequently. There's also been a, 
a move in in some jurisdictions, I think, to in really complex cases form panels of of several experts uh, to offer a, a joint opinion on issues. Richard, have you encountered any of those? So yes, uh, this uh, past uh, year uh, we did have one case where the court. Uh, requested the two experts on opposing sides to meet together. They called that in legal terms hot tubbing. And uh, that went very well, partly because the expert on the other side was well known to me, is my mentor in the field of geriatric psychiatry. And we have a good uh, working relationship. And so we were able to provide a joint report to the court outlining what we thought was the key issue for the judge to decide upon and why we had you know, subtle differences of opinion about how to interpret the uh, deceased in terms of the final decision about testamentary capacity and the condition that she had. So it was very collaborative, partly, I think, because we had a good relationship you know, with two experts who may not know each other and there may be more uh, discomfort. I don't know if it would work as well, but it's certainly a very interesting idea to bring the two together and try and make it as clear cut as possible to the court. What is the issue and where do we not see eye to eye on? So a, a retrospective capacity assessment is a pretty challenging undertaking and requires a lot of specialist expertise. Both of you have been involved in, in a number of, of cases where that was very helpful. If a listener to this podcast is dealing with a circumstance in, in their family or with a client where a will exists and there seems to be a great deal of contention about some aspects for it, could you offer a few comments on when when in your mind, what are the what are the signals that suggest a retrospective assessment might be a very useful step to take? I guess from my perspective, a retrospective analysis would be important or a necessary step when there are some red flags that would indicate so, such as a large change in bequest, which is dramatically different than the prior testamentary document or if there's indications of underlying cognitive issues that could impact the disposition of a will that the lawyer might be aware of, behavioral change, someone may be interacting in a manner which is disparate or different than he had in the past. Someone was never a risk taker, but now they are. Someone was a very quiet person, but yet still assertive when it came to their final opinions, but now they seem to have been taking direction by others, as well as, you know, there's, we can go on for a little bit. One common one I've seen as well, which is often a trigger, is the insertion in the will or insertion in the estate or the planning documents of someone that's new, be it a caregiver, a brand new friend, quote unquote. Um, I had one recently where it was a lawn keeper. It was a long-standing loan group, but it was very unique and different compared to the prior estate planning documents. Sudden change. Absolutely. Sudden change. Richard? Yeah, I would agree with all that. But I, where I find the very interesting cases for me have been where the will is, is done in relation, in a close proximity to a recent hospitalization. 
and including wills done in the hospital, the so-called deathbed wills. Mm-hmm. So this is really, these are excellent cases where the medical expert really can assist the court and can assist the client retaining the expert as well, because there's uh, often a lot of medical data and the time proximity close to making the will, it really opens up to um, a lot of um, material that we can use to assist the court process. So these are particularly type of cases that the medical expert can be assisting in. Well, thank you. So we've we've explored the idea of testamentary capacity and in some circumstances how uh, retrospective evaluation can help support uh, decisions that were made or or undermine them if if the evidence is that they were were made uh, with without capacity, but it's a it's a very important tool that comes up in very difficult uh, very difficult circumstances. We're fortunate at the capacity clinic to be able to offer through Dr. Pache and Dr. Schulman their expertise to do retrospective capacity assessments. I'd like to thank you both, Dr. Shomo and Dr. Pache, for being with us today and giving us more insight into testamentary capacity and the differences between contemporaneous and retrospective capacity assessments. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Be sure to check back for Episode 5. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Capacity Conversations. For more information please visit us at www.capacityclinic.ca, on Instagram at capacity underscore clinic, and on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a rating and review. And remember to subscribe so that you know when to catch our next episode. Please join us in this conversation about serving older Canadians better. 